0: good morning everyone uh thank you for coming Uh, i want to thank ali for arranging this um, and for making it um just so wonderful um i had so much fun last night that i almost forgot i had a paper uh to give this morning so (laughs) uh so hopefully you can bear with me the the conference is about translation uh, I'll be talking about ta'wil, which is uh, interpretation, also ishara. But, um, I think in the spirit of the broad understanding of translation, all translation uh, of the Quran is an interpretation. So in a sense, uh, hopefully I can say interpretation, uh, is also a kind of translation. So let me first of all, uh, say as a, by way of a caveat that I'm not, primarily a scholar of Ibn Arabi uh, in particular. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I've been quite interested in his thought for a long time. Uh, so I'm not going to be presenting necessarily something new about Ibn Arabi. What, what I hope to do in this presentation is to think with Ibn Arabi about a topic that is of great interest to me, namely the way in which Muslims past and present have tried to understand and interpret the Qur'an, a scripture that presents a number of difficulties and challenges for human understanding, but also more importantly and less negatively, seems to open doors to profound spiritual meanings, and whose verses often seem to invite interpretation, encouraging us to read and contemplate them over and over again seeming to promise us access to something deeper, something hidden beneath its literal words. Now, Muslim debates about interpreting the Qur'an often turn on questions of authority. Who has the authority to interpret the Qur'an? What qualifications do you need? How much knowledge? What kind of intellectual capacity? Your moral rectitude and so on. Um, But this question doesn't really interest me that much, in part because... Even the most knowledgeable human being, even the most intelligent human being, even the most morally upstanding human being is still in the end a human being. And the question is, what business does a human being have claiming to know what God really meant in this verse or that verse of the Quran? And at first glance, uh it would seem that uh, it would seem that the Quran agrees. So uh, this well-known verse, the beginning of Surah Ali Imran, uh, he it is who has sent down the book upon you. Therein are signs determined. They are the mother of the book and others symbolic. They uh, another symbolic. As for those whose hearts are given to swerving, they follow that of it, which is symbolic, sinking temptation pitna, and seeking its interpretation. Taril. And none knows its interpretation. Ta'il, save God and those firmly rooted in knowledge, they say we believe in it, all of it is from our Lord, and none remember, save those who possess intellect. This verse has long given Muslims pause uh, about the possibility, legitimacy, or even the moral acceptability of seeking to interpret the Quran, and the stakes were raised even more by a well-known Hadith that promised a seat in hellfire to anybody who attempted to uh, interpret the Quran according to their own opinion, tasir Birai. But even apart from these scriptural or Hadith statements warning about interpreting the Quran, as I noted at the outset, one can make a perfectly rational argument based on a belief in God's absolute transcendence and infinitude and the limitations of the human mind, did the idea of human beings making authoritative claims about God's revealed word seems uh, unwise, imprudent, and indeed a demonstration of the kind of hubris that the Qur'an repeatedly uh, chastises the unbelievers for. And Ibn Aadbi, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, seems to agree and surprisingly, because as many of you know, Ibn Arabi's entire corpus of writing could be considered something of a grand commentary on the Quran. It's deeply rooted in the Quran, uh, and he offers a number of unique and sometimes unexpected interpretations of the word of God, and that might be an understatement. Even so, uh, Ibn Arabi himself quite adamantly rejects the idea that the human mind and its imperfect rational faculties can make any definitive interpretation of the word of God. To try to do so for him would be bad manners. Su' al adab toward God um, in the nicest possible scenario and maybe even unbelief. <clears throat> so, um, this fact, this seeming uh, contradiction has already been well documented and noted by Professor William Chittick, Michael Choikovitz, and other scholars. But I think it's important to try to think a bit more about the term ta'wil, which Ibn Arabi generally derides, and also ishara, or allusion, which is his term of choice for his own approach to understanding the Qur'an. So, in terms of the word ta'wil itself, of course, the most common well-known word for interpretation of the Quran is tafsir, which uh, usually refers to uh, a kind of general practice of interpreting the Quran according to its etymology, its grammatical structures, translated understandings of uh, the asbab and azul, the the situation under which various verses were Revealed and and early Muslim opinions about this. By at least the 10th century, the term ta'wil had, which seems initially to have been used kind of interchangeably with tafsir in the very beginning of of exegetical work uh, in the Islamic world, the word ta'wil by the 10th century seems to have become somewhat separate to refer more commonly to esoteric or inward or symbolic or allegorical Uh, interpretations of the Quran, but in different ways. Okay. So uh, what I want to do is talk about sort of three um, uh, uses and it looks kind of funny on here. I don't know if you guys can see that. Um, It looks like it's partly covered by this. Um, Should I close this down? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. So just uh, very quickly, not to take too much time. um, She eats hot wheel. Uh, which, as far as I know, um, Imanadabi doesn't, uh, say a lot about, um, uh, might be one of the earliest uses, specialized uses of this term. Um, she, is often juxtaposed with the idea of tenzil, right? Uh, so tenzil is the descent of the word. So it has to do with the literal word ta'wil, uh, is the, its literal meaning, of course, is to return something to its origin. To go back to its original purpose, which is how it gets connected uh, with the idea of interpretation. Now, Sheen Ta'wil is, uh, first of all, a very allegorical kind of ta'wil. So uh, she's tended to read certain passages of the Qur'an as references to specific historical persons, the imams, Ali, uh, Fatima, to certain events uh, in history, And this is true in both Twelver and Ismaili Uh, Shi Ta'wil. There's a kind of reading of the Quran um, in light of a history, a kind of broader sacred history of which the Shi Imams, again, whether Ismaili or or Twelver, um, were a central um, and culminating uh, uh, part of that history. So, obviously, um, Ibn Atabi would not have been very happy about this, first of all, because it is a very allegorical type of of commentary, one that takes the uh, meaning, the literal meaning, or or let's say the, the assigned meaning of a particular chronic verse quite far from its literal meaning. And, of course, for she's... Uh, the the people who really had the responsibility and the ability to uh, interpret the Quran was the imams, right? Uh, the prophets bring the Tenzil, they bring the revealed word. The uh, the Shi'i imams bring or unfold the tawil uh, over time. Okay, um, a second uh, kind of tawil is a metaphorical uh, interpretation of certain chronic words or passages, uh, that was done by mutazlis and also by later Asharis. Um, and this particularly was done with regard to anthropomorphic expressions in the Quran, right? So if God was said to have a hand or a face or to sit on a throne and so on, it was understood that You know, reason could not accept the idea that God had a body, was delimited, could have something that looks uh, like flesh, uh, like ours, could sit in one place. And so because this couldn't be accepted from a rational point of view, I should say a rational point of view based upon a pre-existing belief in God's absoluteness, his inability to be delimited by space and time. Um, Because that was an an impossibility, you had to interpret it. The hand had to mean his power, or the face had to mean his presence, or sitting on the throne had to mean his absolute authority, uh, and so on. And one of the earliest people to kind of formulate this was Abu Hamad al-Ghazali, who wrote a treatise called uh, uh, Qaduna Ta'wil, The Principle of Ta'wil. And it was then, of course, expanded by Fahreddin Razi, who talks about this in his commentary itself. Um, Interestingly, uh, one of the people who really embraced this idea of the principle of ta'wil, and I should just say that kanuna ta'wil, which I have up there, means you must interpret metaphorically a passage of the Quran that contradicts reason like this. One of the people who embraces this is, of course, uh, Ibn Rushd. Uh, Not generally a fan of Hazali in in certain ways, Uh, but in his fossil Maqal, he really embraces this idea as a rationalist. He embraces this idea of Qanuna Ta'wil. Um, One of the people who, along with Ibn Arabi, doesn't agree with this is actually Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah spends a long time talking about the problem with Qanuna Ta'wil. So Ta'wil makes for some strange bedfellows. Finally, I will say, uh, in turn, the Sufis themselves, of course, use the term ta'wil uh, uh, to mean, in general, a kind of deeper or uh, higher or more profound understanding of the Quran, which one reaches by going through the literal interpretation of the text. It's not an allegorical idea of sort of leaving the literal meaning of the text Right. Um, it's often understood as a either a deeper, as I said, a deeper or a higher meaning. I have this image of the tree here along a kind of vertical axis, right? And both the roots in the ground and the branches up above are connected to each other through the trunk and they're both mutually dependent upon one another. So it makes sense. That a kind of interpretation of the Quran that Sufis uh in including uh, Ibn audibi uh, uh would be happy with would be one in which there is this connection between the outward and the inward aspects of scripture. Okay, so um uh despite this, uh for Ibn Arabi, um even though the term wheel can be used in this way that doesn't necessarily let go of the of that um meaning of that uh, literal meaning, he still rejects the use of this uh, term ta'wil. And as I said, this notion of a kind of deeper or higher or more profound meaning seems to suggest a range of meaning along a vertical axis. Mm -hmm. Um, But for Ibn Arabi, who describes the Quran as an ocean, it is not just an ocean of unrealizable or unfathomable depths. And along that, that vertical axis. But it is also, as uh, 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 Choitkovitz reminds us, for Ibn Arabi, the Quran is an ocean without shore. Not just that it's unfathomable in terms of a deep sense, but horizontally, right? Um, it is in- inexhaustible in all directions. And his opposition to the use of the human rational faculty, or akal, is that it imposes a kind of delimitation on the Quran. And he reminds us that the word akal is related to the root, which means to limit or to constrain. And so any speculative or rational attempt to understand the Quran is a false delimitation of its uh, inexhaustibility. Okay. Um. I'm trying to, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So I'm going to jump at this point, then, to talk about the term that Ibn Arabi does prefer when he mentions uh, the Quran. Just contemplate the ocean for a moment. <laughs> so, um, so Ibn Arabi's preferred term for chronic interpretation is ishara, which means illusion or suggestion or indication. The term isn't unique to him, of course. It has wide usage in the Sufi tradition. Sufis sometimes refer to themselves as the Ahl al-Ashara, people of illusion. Uh, and it doesn't only pertain to chronic interpretation. Nonetheless, it is used um, by Sufi authors, uh, both before Ibn Arabi's time, right? Qushari's al Isharat, the subtle uh, allusions is the name of his commentary. Um, the 18th century uh, uh, exegete Ibn Ajiba divides his interpretation of the Quran into its ibada and its ishara, right? Its uh, expression and its, um, its, its indications. Now, when Ibn Arabi discusses his and other Sufis' use of this term ishara, he suggests that it is done largely to deflect criticism from the exoteric scholars, the ulama al for whom he has a good deal of criticism. Nonetheless, he indicates that by referring to their more esoteric understandings of the Quran as isharat, the Sufis can helpfully avoid the kind of scrutiny that would come if they were to put these forward as their own interpretations, right? Uh, or tafasir. Rather, they both understand and present it as a meaning that occurs or is suggested specifically to them as individuals. But this is not the only place where Ibn Arabi talks about the term ishara. He discusses ishara, for example, as a special capacity given to those saints who have committed themselves to remaining silent. As I discussed in a presentation at a previous Ibn Arabi society conference, Ibn Arabi asserts that those saints who have practiced or taken a commitment to silence as a spiritual exercise are granted by way of compensation extraordinary powers of illusion. An ability to communicate all that they need without using words. And in that same paper, I note that he gives uh, as a paradigmatic case for such a saint, uh, the Quranic figure of Maryam, the mother of Jesus. He mentions Mariam when he talks about Ishara in terms of the Qur'an as well. And he notes that when Mariam brings the infant Jesus to her unexpecting family, she's taken, like these other saints, a, a, a commitment to remain silent. And so when she brings them to her in the face of their accusations, just like the Sufis in the face of the accusations of the exoteric scholars, she doesn't speak, she just points to the infant Jesus in order to avoid blame. I would say that the idea of Ashad, and I haven't found Ibn ought to be discussing it in this particular way, but the idea of illusion or Ashada is a kind of barzakh idea, right? So Um, Ibn Arabi sees the whole world really in many ways as a series of barzakhs or uh, barazikh, liminal points, right? That the contingent world is a barzakh between absolute existence and non-existence, or the imagination is a barzakh between uh, abstract thought and and sensory uh, perception and so on. Well, ishara also is that kind of a liminal concept, Right? It's somewhere between speech and silence. Okay. From the point of view of speech, uh, ishara or pointing or indication uh, seems like a silent move. But from the point of view of silence, it's a kind of speech or at least uh, a communication. Okay. Um, but from the point of view of, I'm um, sorry, uh, but, but, Ibn Arabi's invocation of the case of Mariam specifically, not only in relation to the saints, uh, but also in relation to the Quran and Quranic interpretation, I think is particularly uh, significant. Um, There we go. Um, In the passage uh, from the Quran, uh, it says when she brings him to her people, then she pointed to him, asharat Ilehi." And they said, how shall we speak to one who is yet a child in the cradle? And he said, truly, I am a servant. He being Jesus said, truly, I am a servant of God. He has given me the book and made me a prophet. Now, when Mariam points to the infant Jesus, she's pointing to a child who has already been described in the Qur'an as the word of God, a word from him. So what she's doing, really, in pointing, and she doesn't look like she's quite pointing in this picture. I apologize. I couldn't find one where there was an artist doing exactly what I wanted them to do. Um, but when she points to the child, right, um, what she's doing is she's pointing back to the word itself. Right? She's pointing back uh, to the word. And when the family says, how can we speak to a child in the cradle, they're not instructed as to how they can speak to a child in the cradle because they're right. They can't. Instead, the child speaks to them. Right. So I think in using this term ishara, Ibn Arabi might also be giving us an ishara, um, about the importance of fidelity to the literal meaning uh, of the Quran. Right? I think he suggests here that the highest purpose of interpretation or ishara is to point the reader back to the Quranic words themselves, to allow them to see for themselves, as Maryam's family did, the miraculous nature of God's word, to come to understand while that while they may not be able to speak to the Quran, they might not be able to impose their own rational discursive thoughts upon the Qur'an, they might come to witness, as Mariam's family did, the miraculous ability of God's word to speak to them in the most unexpected of ways.